0: Hello everybody. My name is Alina Roque and I'm the Communications Manager for Mary Jo Rapini, a practicing psychotherapist in Houston, Texas. We are joined today by Dr. William July, who is a clinical psychologist with offices in Houston, Austin, and Dallas. In addition, Dr. July is an author, entrepreneur, and professor at the Houston Graduate School for Theology. Dr. July, uh, what would you like to add to that?
1: Um. Well, when I hear that, it makes me very tired. (laughs) Uh, No, you you have an accurate bio of me there. That was fine.
0: Well, we want to thank you for joining us and trusting us to share your experience with racism and to bring more awareness to the community. Uh, Mary Jo and I, along with um, those who are tuning in, are here to listen and learn uh, Mary Jo, do you have anything you'd like to add?
2: No, I'm just real excited about this. I'm hoping that this is going to be a project going forward that promotes healing and us coming together with um, all communities and understanding each other. I think storytelling has always been a great gift, and so we're hoping that, you know, sharing stories from our black brothers and sisters is really going to help us understand and work together to rebuild.
0: Absolutely. And so with that being said, I'd like to just go ahead and start off with the first question we have here to go ahead and get the conversation going. Um, So Dr. July, what age were you when you first felt racism?
1: That is a really good question because uh, I can look at that let me look at that in several layers um growing up black in houston texas born in 65 your parents give you that identity um early out and they and they they help you if it's done in a positive way your parents help you identify that as who you are and they start preparing you for how other people may not see you for the value of who you are. That was my personal experience. But that is not the the perspective of the society I grew up in in the 60s. I think if I go way back, I remember one story. When I was, I had to be about third grade, um, I was watching the news, the Eyewitness News, Channel 13, and there was a news report about how black people were not going to be allowed to drink Borden's milk. Now, I don't remember the details of all that. <clears throat> I just remember some something I saw on the news at, at that age, or, that black people weren't going to be allowed to drink Borden's milk or something like that. And I just didn't understand that, and I got real nervous. And I went and I told my mother, really, uh, I'm, I, my feelings were hurt. And my mother, she said, Where'd you hear that? And I said, it was on the news. And she said, well, I'll tell you what, we're going to go to the store right now and we're going to get you some Borden's milk. So we got in the car, we drove to the grocery store, and we walked up to the refrigerator case. She got the Borden's milk. We walked up to the counter, paid for it, and that was the end of that. That was one of my earliest memories of what, of, of just, you know, having to be consciously aware and even as a kid you know you're walking around and you know you know that you're not supposed to go certain places uh you're not supposed to do certain things you're supposed to um uh, be aware of how to talk to the police you know i remember the first time i got a, a ticket uh it was a terrifying experience um and i think this has to do with probably why i went and became a police officer at one point um in my life, I I was a police officer for a while, and I was driving down now San Jacinto, driving down San Jacinto, not far from the park, um, and I saw two police cars. Back then, they had a park police division of the H.P.D., and so they were going so fast that when I looked in my rearview mirror, now mind you, I just had my license for probably uh, a month, and they were going so fast that by the time I moved over. Uh, lanes, one of them was almost about to hit me, so they swerved and missed me, hit the lights, pulled me over, and that's when everything started. And I'll never forget this uh now, my parents had prepared me for this moment um, the history of black people in America had prepared me for that moment mm-hmm. uh, so i i I I knew what to say, what to do. I knew to to everything had to be, you know, to keep my hands down at my sides, to um not get my voice elevated, to not make any sudden movements, to uh not um not be pulled into anything that they might try to uh bait me into saying and just to basically conduct business with them uh and then just but you're doing all that and you're hoping that it works. There, there, there were two officers, two female officers, and two male officers, and they were both in different cars. There were two females in one car, two males in another car. One of the male officers was a um, kind of mature guy. They were playing good cop, bad cop. He got out of the car, everything just like out of a bad movie. He pulled up his belt over his gut and he said, Oh, there's old Leroy. And I was like, "Crap, man, this is gonna be bad." This, is... and he said, "What are you doing out here, Leroy? Can't you drive? What's wrong with you? What? How? Who taught you how to drive?" And then the other guy, who's playing the good cop role, says, "Yeah, where'd you get your license? A Cracker Jacks box?" Uh, now I'm two blocks from my house, you know, <laughs> and I'm oh, thinking, "Man, my oh my God, what, what are these guys gonna do?" The two female officers didn't say anything. Uh, they got out of their car and. So then the the the, uh, the guy who was making the racial comments, he got, like, right in front of me, I'd say, four inches from me, to where if I just breathed a deep breath, my stomach was going to touch his. And that's what, in, in my mind, I'm thinking that's what he wants me to do. He wants me to accidentally touch him or something, and then, you know, I'm going to get beat down out here. The other guy was standing right behind me. And so they started interrogating me, of course, now years later, I became a police officer myself. I know there's a certain speech you're supposed to give people, and that's it. Boom. Yeah. I'm Officer July with the XYZ Police. reason I stopped you is because you were speeding, going 75 in a 55-mile-per-hour zone. Do you have an emergency? No, you don't. May I see your driver's license and your insurance? Then I conduct my business with you. Go check the warrants. Boom. You're done. None of that was happening what you say in those situations if they're if they have it in for you they just have it in for you eventually they finally wrote me a ticket they got the ticket and uh they left and i was shaking i I, I didn't realize i was shaking until they left or maybe i didn't start shaking until i got in the car i got in the car i was shaking and i never will forget this i drove i lived two blocks away i drove around the corner went home i was stunned i was shaking i was terrified And I went in the house, I got in bed. I didn't tell my parents what happened. I just got in bed and just laid there. And then to make things even more terrifying, about an hour later there was a police helicopter circling over the area with a light going. And of course it wasn't looking for me, but I mean, that just added to my, the trauma that I had, you know, because I was like, oh. So my parents never knew that for years until I told them, uh, I just told them I had, I, I got a ticket
2: unbelievable
1: yeah it was well you know and it's just like
2: yeah it's so scary and that fear is very real and it's still there i mean it's 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 told to you from your parents who love you and you understand like when you said i knew exactly how to act
1: yeah the only reason we're seeing all this stuff now is because of video because none of this is new and oh that's yeah I could have easily been one of those stories that night and again maybe they detected that I you know wasn't a kid who was up to no good and they left me alone or maybe they just had something better to do and didn't beat me or something but um needless either way um it could have been me and uh it, it certainly could have been me Yeah and and even the uh, the, the another story was a friend of mine and I were at a, were at Astro World. I tell you how old I am. That was when Astro World was <laughs> actually an amusement park over on Sixteen. Yeah. And we were just two kids at Astro World. We 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 had season passes and we'd go every probably like three or four times a week and just be there. And the, one day we were walking through the park. We never went inside the stores or anything because we we weren't tourists. We were just kids who were always there and suddenly um i'd say 15 security guards just came out of nowhere and surrounded us and uh it was the most humiliating thing in the world and they uh surrounded us and then they closed in and then they walked us with with like five or six on each side and two or three in front and two or three in the back uh walked us to this secure area and started asking us questions and uh about stealing something and so because and, we fit the description it's hard to describe mary joe you grow up with that in mind i still have that in mind today i mean i'm a grown man i'm 54 years old but you know i keep in mind that to certain people that's i still just fit a description that's why uh in my neighborhood i won't even i live in a, an area where it's an it's a transitional area so you know you have new you know i have a new home Mm -hmm. but right outside the gates is a whole different story right you know it's that that kind of area and um there's a 24-hour fitness that i'm a member member of 10 minutes by walk away i will not walk outside those gates and walk to my gym i see my neighbors doing i see my white neighbors doing it there's no way i'm going to do that because once i walk outside of those gates they don't see me as somebody who lives inside of those gates. They don't even know I live in there. They wouldn't believe I live in there. And then uh, I start to, I'm going to look like the people that are out there on the street around the outside, around It's the as if
2: your color betrays you on yeah. being safe, uh, even after yeah. all you've accomplished.
0: And this kind of leads into our next question. You may have already answered it with the examples that you've given us so far. Um, so just let us know if if you have shared it already. But just so that people are aware that racism still happens today and is very real, could you share your most difficult or painful experience with racism?
1: Ah, uh, let me see. Wow. there've been so many incidents. That it
2: sounds like it's something you carry every day. Yeah, you you're you know, you're just a, yeah and it's almost like you it, you've you've anticipated it so you purposely try to live in a way, in a different way
1: that is exactly right and i would really hope that that um your listeners underscore what you just said you you intentionally and consciously live a different way. There, are, I I have to think strategically about a lot of things. For example, yesterday I had to go pick something up. I rented something from a guy. He worked out of his home. I sent him a text. Said, "Here's my picture. Uh, this is the kind of car I'm going to be in, and this is when I'll be here, be there." Because I because it was a, a white neighborhood and that I was going to, and it was an area where I know they probably don't see a lot of blacks, and I just wanted him to want him to know who I, what I, what I look like in case there was an answer. I mean, you're always thinking about little things like this. And, uh, it's even interesting because people would say, this would sound like paranoia in a clinical sense if it wasn't really my experience. And that, it's funny because, um, a well-known clinical fact is like when you're, when I'm interpreting, say an MMPI, uh, personality profile, and it's a black male, one of the things you have to keep in mind is that some of the paranoia scales may be elevated but that doesn't mean that they're paranoid it like i remember when i was taking the mmpi because you take it when you go into law enforcement and Mm -hmm. uh i remember i i I always remembered and of course i know now as a clinician but um there's a question everything's true or false uh and it said one, one of the questions says uh people stare at me more than they do other people and i put false because i knew what they were trying to ask but i actually Mm. thought yeah that's true (laughs) because it is true i'm I'm a big black guy i love being a big black guy i love being myself but i know that people are going to look at me not necessarily in a good way or they're just going to look at me if you let it feel as a as though it's a bad thing your life's going to be very difficult so for example you're not going to see many black male licensed clinical psychologists Okay, people are going to look at me, but that's something I can use. So you have to kind of constantly remanufacture and not let it dominate your life. But that's difficult.
2: Right, but you have to, it's almost as if you're working harder with everything because you're you're premeditating what you're going to do because you understand how it may look to others who aren't used to seeing black people. You yeah. don't want to be profiled.
1: Exactly, that's why every time, any advertising I run has my picture on it. I, I'm not ego, egotistical. It's because I don't want you to call me if you're gonna be shocked and then I have to go through you being shocked when you survive, when you show up in my office.
2: That's gotta manifest in your body.
1: Dr. Absolutely, Dr. I'm sure it does. I,
2: I have no doubt that, and I agree 100% that the high stress contributes to the blood pressure to the, to all the issues of heart disease mm-hmm. and and just their high and anger if they're yeah. angry god knows they have cause i mean yeah, they've oh, carried yeah. this you know you you know you said you grew up and you had great parents imagine right. growing up and just not knowing how to deal
1: with it yeah And not even, imagine growing up, you know, not having your parents there to teach you how to deal with this, Um, or even seeing your parents give you bad examples of how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it's just, uh, so I'm not surprised at what we see today.
0: When you talk about the the stress and the anger that everything has been put on you, it kind of leads us into the next question where... How do you think racism has limited your life? And if limited is not the best word, what would you replace it with?
1: I, um, I, I appreciate the last part of what you said there because it's definitely, uh, I would not, I did not let it limit, limit me. I think it's forced me to look at, to have not to have that awareness that I have of who I am, But not to let it limit, not to let other people limit me.
2: I was going to say, just listening, William, it almost sounds like because you knew in advance, like you had, you have such a good perspective, such a good intuition, that it made you um, prepare almost extra hard to get where you are. And then you used it, you used their their faulty perception to almost propel
1: you yeah that's that's a great uh a great way to put it uh and to put that you know i feel like an old man with all these stories mary jones <laughs> but a, <laughs> well you're a gra- not a <laughs> great example uh, yes, i right i'm nowhere near um <laughs> right. a good um a good example of that that reminded me of a story that will encapsulate what you just said uh when i was in college i was uh i was taking karate and um uh, in fact, my, my teacher, my sensei was uh, Ron McNair, the astronaut who died in the Challenger accident. And he had a karate school. Um, and he was an excellent sensei because it was, it was truly about the mind, body, soul thing and learning from him. And he was, he was an excellent sensei, and he was very um, tough, too. There was a lot of racism at the tur- tournaments, believe it or not, because if you, like, say, for example, hit a guy... Um, and you were, and it should have been a scored point. Um, you didn't always get that point, and the uh, thing that we learned was you have to hit them twice, or kick them twice in the right place, or hit them twice in the right place in order to get the point. And he said, "Don't complain about that. That's what you have to do." So it actually made you better, and and you'll hear that same kind of story throughout the black community that you always have to be one better.
0: Just to summarize this, um, this question again, I am hearing you talking about how instead of letting racism limit your life, you've taken on more of an awareness standpoint and having um, a different perspective on reality that's en- enabled you to not be limited um, by racism. And so what do you feel white people miss or don't realize about racism?
1: I think there are different perspectives. I think, I think some of it is that it's so difficult to see that very rational, intelligent people just don't see it. And just therefore, um, with no ill intent, just don't get it. And then we have intelligent dialogues like this, where you have intelligent people as yourselves who really sincerely just are saying, hey, tell me what, what this is about not saying it in a a placating way which is what i appreciate appreciate about this discussion but just saying Mm -hmm. i don't get it man uh tell me about that and that makes a lot of sense and um so i think it's that and i think there is and i hate to uh, use pop terminology but i think there is sometimes like a guilt factor None of us like to feel guilty. You know, Mary Jo, you know this. You see patients oh, all the time who yeah. come through, and mm-hmm. we will go through great pains, all of us, to not feel bad. <laughs> it's yeah, just, and you'll it's,
2: rationalize. What, oh yeah, you know, and your brain's good at it. Yes, and I, I think, you know, um, not to interrupt your train of thought, but no, I, because we don't know how to how to talk about racism, we avoid it. We say. You know, I don't want to be blamed. I, I wasn't in that group of people that took slavery. And I wasn't one of those. I never believed in that. And I think the black community understands that we cannot go back. But going forward, we cannot stay silent either. Yeah. We have to be willing to to listen and to try mm-hmm. and understand the story. And that's where yeah. people like you really help us Dr. July
1: you're right you're right you're right just having an you know a conversation about something that you're not familiar with and without feeling um guarded and attacked and then it's incumbent upon me the the person you're asking for me to make it for me to respond in kind and make it a discussion and not a uh, uh, an attack uh, or a, a, a time or an opportunity to grind an axe.
0: Absolutely, and I appreciate your thoughts on the need for more like human to human discussion and interaction in general, just to have an open mind to be able to discuss and and learn more. Um, but we do have one final question as we wrap up. Uh, do you have any opinion on what is most important for change uh, and healing to occur going forward?
1: Um, for me. My opinion is simple. It comes back to -to person-to-person interactions. And yes, legislation is important. Yes, reforms are important. But my thing is about changing people at the personal level. Because when when you talk about what happened to George Floyd, it was inhumane. And regardless of whether you're a police officer or whatever, you know that that wasn't necessary. Um, and that's what was so ugly about this. There, there wasn't anything happening that, in that video that the whole world saw. So, again, if the, the ringleader would have been a humane person, that would have never happened. We wouldn't be having this discussion right now. So I think everything is starting with human-to-human interaction.
2: I I really love that, and I just am so grateful that you joined us.
1: I'm grateful that you
0: had me. Thank you again for joining us, and really appreciate you helping us create this awareness and having the courage to tell us everything that you did.
1: Well, I appreciate I appreciate the opportunity, and I think that's what it's going to take again for all of us to just speak up. And uh, uh, I don't want to misquote the quote but i think it was eleanor roosevelt's who said roosevelt who said all we need for evil to flourish is for good people to do nothing something along those lines yeah I Amen, wrong, William. but it, that's yeah that's what that's what we have to do yeah can't sit on the sidelines on this one yeah
2: and that's what we all agree on so thank you
1: thank you